So we have made it to uh, Joshua 10, our third week in Joshua 10, and uh, we're going to finish the chapter tonight. Amen. Uh, which may leave some room before we go to Turkey this next uh, next week for a missions night, a, a worship, prayer, uh, prophecy kind of evening. So next Monday, come expecting to do that because we leave Tuesday... Uh, Sometime Tuesday. And uh, it's another special evening. Yes. It is my 24th yeah. anniversary. Woo! And right about now, we were hoping that uh, the preacher would hurry up and pronounce us husband and wife. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what a good decision that was. Um, if I seem distracted, she was wearing white then, she's wearing white tonight. I'm still just uh, ensnared by her beauty, captivated. Uh, why don't we pray? And there, tonight is going to be an unusual meeting. We're going to review all ten chapters. And um, obviously that's going to be kind of a fly-through. And... I'm going to change some of what I told you we were going to do in chapter 10 based on what the Lord's doing in our church right now. Amen. 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 So, uh, who wants to pray with passion? Carlos, pray for us, man. Father of glory, we thank you, Father, for your thing. We bless you for your love, for the time that you give us to our brother, Father. I ask you, Father, to be blessed. Read the chapter to us. You already be getting used to the crazy names. We've got a Hoham, a Horam, all kind of names in there tonight. Now Adonai king of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its kings as he had done to Jericho and its kings, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this, because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all of its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedad, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Ohum king of Hebron, Haram king of Jarmuth, Japhia king of Lachish, and Debir king of Eglon. Come up and help me tap Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all of their troops and took positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites were sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because of all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all of the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into, the ha into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Haran and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Haran to Azekah, 
them from the sky. And more of them died from hailstones than were killed by the sword of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gideon, O moon, over the valley of Ajon, so that the sun stood still and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all the Israel with all Israel to the camp of Gilgal. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, Roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. But the few who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at, camp at Makeda, And no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave. The king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Edwan. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees, and they were left hanging on the trees until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the orders, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there still to this day. That day, Joshua took Makeda. He put the city and its kings to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors, and he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him moved from Makeda to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it, Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there. And he did this to the king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him moved for on from Limna to Lachish. He took up positions against it and attacked it. The Lord handed Lachish over to Israel, and Joshua took it on the second day. The city and everyone in it he put to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. Meanwhile, Haram, king of Gezer, had come up to help Lachish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him moved on from Lachish to Eglon. They took up positions against it and attacked it. They captured it the same day and put it to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it, just as they had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors. Just as Eglon, they totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. They took the city, its king, and its villages and put them to the sword. Everyone in it they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. 
They did to Debir and its king, as they had done to Libna and the king of Hebron. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes. Together with all their kings, he left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnir to Gaza, and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all of Israel to the camp of Gilgal. Amen. Uh, we are going to speak about sanctification and the millennial reign this evening. And that's because this chapter has far more to do with sanctification and the millennial reign than you might have guessed. And I believe that will be clear to you before this is over. Uh, I do want to review and show you what this book of prophecy has been pointing to and see if you can put some of those things together. Before we do... Uh, do y'all mind reading a few scriptures? No. Let's just take a few for fun, okay? So, Chris, why don't you take John seventeen seventeen? Cody, uh, why don't you take Romans fifteen sixteen? Judah, Second Thessalonians two thirteen. And uh, Peyton, are you in here? Yeah, you right there. Stand up, Peyton. First Peter one one through three. John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. Jesus did not just die so that you could be saved. That is such a misnomer, such a misunderstanding. Uh, in the last few messages, Michael spoke about, or Pastor Hutchinson spoke about not being a lion that was tamed, a lion put in a cage. If you short-circuit the process of sanctification, you will be a caged lion. The message before that, we talked about a holy mixture, about how God's grace is power to stop sinning. In other words, God's grace allows you to work through the process of sanctification. Um, I want you to consider that the very first word on the subject is Jesus says, His word is truth and will sanctify you. Staring into His word daily will show you more about your life than any personality profile then, uh, let's be honest, your mama lies to you anyway. Okay, Most of your friends lie to you anyway. They don't want to hurt your feelings. The Word cares nothing for your feelings. It tells you the truth as God sees it. And that's an important thing. You wouldn't go to a doctor who lied to you about your true condition to spare your feelings. The Word is the great physician in your life. To properly understand it, though, it takes the Holy Spirit showing you how that word applies to you. Let's take our next passage. Romans 15, 15 and 16. I've written you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. If they are not sanctified... By the Holy Spirit, they are not acceptable to God, 
even though you can't be sanctified without being saved. Do you follow me here? You get saved, and sanctification is that process of continually going to war with sin in your life and finding the grace to overcome it. You are not acceptable to God simply because you were once saved. That's how he closes the letter that they say is the greatest theological work that he, he did. The grace of God had empowered him to be a minister. He had power over his natural uh, and spiritual adversaries so that he could serve us. And in writing the word to us, which of course is the first component, he speaks of the Spirit sanctifying you so you will become acceptable. Do you want to be acceptable? Absolutely. Yes. yes. I want you to just begin to think about some of what you've learned so far. When they crossed over the Jordan, it very well may have symbolized salvation. We have a Passover. We're going to go through that. But that was not the end of the campaign. And if they had stopped there, you would view them as a total failure. Not once crossed the Jordan, always crossed the Jordan. Okay. If they had crossed over by faith and gone no further, then they would be totally unacceptable to God. That's an incredible point. Something that is lost in our time. So what we want is the ongoing work of the Spirit giving us power over the sin that we are constantly becoming aware of and putting down. That battle, it does have an end. But I almost said it never ends. It feels like it never ends. Let's take our next passage. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you. Brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. The sanctifying work of the Spirit began at salvation. It turns out that in a single day, King Jesus killed most of the enemies that um, would plague you for the rest of your life. He gave you power over them all, but there are survivors hanging out in fortified cities. Did you hear that in Joshua 10, 20? Mm -hmm. But the few who were left made it to the fortified cities. On the day you were saved, he killed most of them. But there are a few who are left who have made it to the fortified cities. When you habitually sin, you are building bigger and bigger cities. You are undoing the work that the cross did in your life. Is that incredible? Yes. Okay. Uh, Let's take our next one. 1 Peter 1, 1-3. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The new birth is beautiful. We have made it the finish line when, in fact, it's a starting line. I'm very, very excited about Tobias Arius. What a crown prince. An extraordinarily beautiful little boy. This is the beginning of his life. Not the culmination of it. Not the finishing point. He's not at maturity. He has not achieved anything except life. And if he goes no further, then what will his life be? Do you understand what I'm saying? 
The new birth was extraordinary, but he said they were chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The way that you can tell God's hand is on someone is they are progressively gaining more and more holy ground. They are possessing more and more of what God has for them. The way that you can tell that someone is backslidden is when they are not possessing more and more of the ground. When you begin to measure your life like that, Joshua 10 is going to take on new uh, meaning for you. But what's most important is not that Joshua 10 take on new meaning for you, is that your life begin to reflect Joshua 10. Yeah. Because most Christians find what they think is a uh, place of equilibrium, and they camp there. They got rid of most of the things that had characterized their life, and they tell it in their testimonies. I used to be, and then you hear the most vile, wicked things that you can hear. Well, that was the low-hanging fruit. That's what left in the day. Tell me about what's left you this week. Tell me about what's left you this month. Tell me about the proof of his sanctifying work going on in your life now. Because all you're really doing is telling me about the day you crossed the Jordan. You're not telling me what's happened since. And it even gets so confusing that if you really did cross the Jordan, but you go no further, after a while you look just like you looked when you were faithless and in the desert. We're not sure you crossed the Jordan. Let's begin to review a little bit, and we're going to come back to that place. We can go, I'm going to put all of this on the screen for those of you that take notes, and nothing that I'm going to share in the next 30 minutes is something that you haven't heard. But as Peter said, I think it's good while I'm in this tent of a body to remind you more and more. Okay, our very first lesson together was an introduction to the book of Joshua. At this point, prior to this recording, I counted them today, we're 26 hours in and 13 teachings, okay? Uh, The introduction was about Joshua's place among the prophets in the Bible. How many of you knew before you started this Bible study that Joshua was considered a prophet? Look around. That's not that many. How many of you knew three years ago that Joshua was a prophet? There's not a single hand up in a room with, I don't know, 100 people in it? But its placement among the prophets is important because it's not only foreshadowing future events. What do the prophets actually do? Warn your soul. I hope to warn your soul tonight. I I keep coming back to that because otherwise we're learning history. Otherwise we're learning something that you'll relegate to allegory. The point of reading this is that it warn your soul today. Amen? Amen. As we continue to go through week one, somebody tell me what we're seeing in these three names in the center of the screen. Salvation. Salvation. He first shows up as Hoshea. Then... The pronunciation of his name in Numbers 13 is written in Hebrew more like Yehoshua. And this is uh, the nickname that Moses gives him. By the time his name shows up in the book of Nehemiah, because of the development of Hebrew, what we have is his name is Yeshua. They all mean the same thing. They mean salvation. This is how we get a transliterated Jesus or, or Jesus into Greek. And can you all see that? Yes. Okay. If you know that he's going to warn your soul, and you know his name is the same as Jesus, 
How important ought you to take that, that lesson? Pretty, pretty important. We looked at seven things from his life. This, um, I'm hoping you'll be able to put some of these together as we go. Um, the first one. Joshua was the firstborn of an Ephraimite named Nun. When we say Joshua, son of Nun, Nun was an Ephraimite. And if he was the firstborn and Joshua came out of Egypt, what does that mean about Joshua himself? He was saved by the blood of a lamb. That's important, isn't it? Not every Israelite had physically been saved by the blood of a lamb. Not in Israel's history. But in this generation... The men who were first born should have been struck dead, and they weren't. Why? Because of the blood of a lamb. Yeah, I, I think every once in a while it's worth going back through these. I'm learning as a pastor that you don't always catch everything the first time that I say it. Uh, that mild repetition is not actually boring for the hungry student. You know. Uh, the second thing that we looked at is that he was ordained in Deuteronomy 34.9. And it says he was full of the spirit. I'm sorry, he was ordained in Numbers 27. And in Deuteronomy 34, 9, he's full of the spirit. This is an answer to Moses' prayer. Joshua himself is an answer to Moses' prayer. That's incredible, isn't it? Yes. We're going to begin to talk about Joshua as a student of Moses and some, some things in the weeks to come. But how many of you feel like it's a burden if you have to call a pastor? You can be honest. So I should put up her hand and then put it down because she's terrified. Um, what about the rest? So tell the truth. Burden, right? Now, how many of you have heard your pastor say it's okay to call and that we're approachable and that our doors are open? How many of you are just lying or dead laying right here? <laughs> this is twofold. A student ought to be the answer to the prayer of the teacher. Because if he's not there just to display his knowledge, which is devilish, he ought to be there to produce somebody who does what he does and goes further. So Moses is concerned towards the end of his life and he wants to know who's going to lead him in and God points to Joshua. Joshua is the answer to Moses' prayer. As a student, are you the answer to a pastor's prayer? I hope. I mean, I hope so. You know what will, that will depend on? Whether or not you go on and reach your potential. You know how you do that? Sanctification. Amen. So that's where we're going to end up tonight. Amen. While we were teaching about those things, I got off into Romans 10.4 and how Jesus Christ is the answer to the prayer of the law. Jesus Christ is the culmination of the law. Jesus is what the law always hoped to produce the same way that Moses hoped to produce a Joshua. The Greek word there was telos, and it literally means the full extent of. Jesus is the full extent of everything the law ever hoped for. Well, in that way, this book of prophecy was foreshadowing something. What the law taught us was right, but the people couldn't do, Joshua would come in and do. And it was everything, he was everything that the law hoped for. This helps you understand Jesus' relationship to the Mosaic law. Not against it, not abrogating it, not setting it aside. He is everything that the law ever hoped to produce, living, breathing, and walking in the flesh. Hallelujah. Somebody say that's good. <laughs> You're not going to hear that very many places. And it's important because once you understand 
the relationship of Joshua to Jesus and the book of Joshua to the Newer Testament revelation, you'll see why Joshua 10 is ultimately about sanctification and not just a bloody battle. Third thing we learn. Jewish tradition says that Joshua wrote Deuteronomy 34, 4 through 12. It's interesting to see how honoring of Moses Joshua is. Joshua calls Moses the greatest prophet who ever lived. But you've gone far enough in the book of Joshua now to see that Joshua did things Moses only dreamed of. Never before or since had a man commanded the stellar realm to stop in place and then some kind of meteorite pick off all of the enemies while you're standing still. Moses didn't do that. But Joshua calls Moses the best. Maybe that's because Joshua recognizes he's standing on Moses' shoulders. Fourth one, Jewish tradition on the Hakham. This is the lead disciple. In Numbers 13, 8, when Moses renamed Joshua, or renamed Hoshea to Joshua, this is very similar to John 1, 42, where Jesus renames uh, Simon Peter. And what you begin to see is Joshua was Moses' lead disciple. He was one of 12, just like Peter was one of 12. Um, more was expected of him because he was capable of more, just like Peter. And the actual tradition traces to Joshua, and Peter's the recipient of it. The fifth one, one of only two men in Israel who left Egypt and went into the land. Oh, come on, man. You think the NFL draft is a rare uh, percentage? Uh, my kids are watching uh, Ninja Warrior, the, uh, you know, and uh, you get credit if you just go through one or two obstacles and everybody else fails. No, this was literally sink or swim, <laughs> and uh, two men made it. Uh, sixth, he was nearly stoned because he stood for the Lord when all except Caleb turned away from the Lord. In Numbers 14, 10. This was a character profile of Joshua. Do you love him already? Yes. Yes. Having read more of the book now, having studied more of the book, do you love him? Yes. yes. The more you look into the life of Jesus, the more you love him. Amen. A very shallow view is he was just God, and so everything was, you know, perfect, easy. No, he got hungry. He got tired. It took tenacity. It took grit. And you love him the more you recognize that. It doesn't lessen him. 2,000 years of history have caused us to not see Jesus as a man, to only see him as God. But the men who were looking at him saw him as a man, and it had to be revealed that he was God. That subtle difference actually causes you to place him in such a category that you respect Jesus less if you're not careful. I mean, he had to contend with everything that we have to contend with, and yet he prevailed. And he lowered himself so that he did not have godlike omniscience. He, he did not have anything available to him that you don't have available to you. When you start to look at it like that, you go, well, I should be more like him. The seventh thing. His appearance in the scriptural narrative began in Exodus 17.9. That's an important shadow and type for the entire book of Joshua because Exodus 17, 9, the reason that Joshua comes on the scene is Israel's encountering their first battle and he leads them in it. The reason the Son of God appeared on the, screen, on the scene 
was to lead you into your first battle. That battle is sanctification. Exodus' first battle was not the Passover. Not one of them had to fight with an Egyptian, did they? Do you, do you get me? God did the whole Passover for them. He delivered them all the way from Egypt. What was the first battle with? It's with the Malachites. And they had to be led in hand-to-hand combat. Joshua 10 is hand-to-hand combat under King Joshua. After you have been saved, King Jesus leads you in hand-to-hand combat with the petty psychosis of the human race. I mean, the double-mindedness of the human race. The weakness of the human race. He leads you in battle against those things, and that's sanctification. By the time that was all before we got to the first chapter. When we got to the first chapter and the first verse, Joshua is introduced as Moses' aid, which is seen in the Hebrew word Meshareth. It means one who ministers. He was not just an answer to Moses' prayer, he was somebody who ministered on Moses' behalf and because of Moses. You know, that's so beautiful. Jesus is not just a king. He is also a minister. He's an apostle and high priest of our faith. He lives to make intercession. He is ministering. The primary way that he ministers to a believer, he doesn't leave that throne. He gives you his spirit so that you can win battles against sin. You see why Christian can't live in sin any longer? You're denying the ministry of Jesus Christ while you were saying that he is your savior. We considered the effects of discipleship upon Joshua. Joshua was there when Moses rejected the throne of Egypt. He was there when Moses killed the Egyptian. He was there when Aaron demonstrated miracles. He was there when Aaron failed by acquiescing to the people. And it led us to the idea that proper discipleship allows you to inherit the strengths of the one discipling you while rejecting the weaknesses of. None of the weaknesses of Moses can be found in Joshua. None of the weaknesses of Aaron can be found in Joshua. But all of their strengths can be found in Joshua. Oh man, discipleship is the primary vehicle by which you learn to be sanctified. If you knew every time you were doing it wrong, then you, uh, you might not be doing it wrong. We need people in our lives to help us to see that. The longer you resist that, the stupider you become. (laughs) Let me say that again. I like to say it. It makes me feel good, warm inside to say it. The longer you resist correction through discipleship, the less IQ you have available. Sin makes you dumb. Proverbs 12 says when you hate correction, you are stupid. Hebrew says sin hardens your heart. So not only do you become stupid, you become hard-hearted. Tell me how important it is to embrace correction and discipleship. Joshua did. He did for 40 years in a desert that he personally didn't deserve to be in. Let that sink in on you for a while. We want to be perfected like Christ. We learn obedience through what we suffer. And part of discipleship involves suffering. It means that you don't agree and you do it anyway. 
And you say, wow, man, that sounds very controlling. Then you have the wrong person discipling you. There were promises that were given to Joshua in the first chapter. All of these seven promises we've gone over several times, but they're promises that equate to your life as well. Every place you tread upon will be yours, from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates to the wilderness of Lebanon. No man shall stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail or neglect you. I will not forsake or abandon you. You will lead this people to inherit the land, Israel. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Man, that assurance was incredible. Perhaps that's why he could be told to be strong and courageous, and God absolutely expected it. Do you have equally good promises? Yes. 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 Two of you do? Do you have equally good promises? Yes. Then should we expect Expect the kind of strength and courage that Joshua had out of you. See, when Jesus said, you will do even greater things than these, he expected it. Now, in the charismatic world, for some reason, we we think that's miracles. Okay, well, maybe it is miracles, but I don't think you even get to those if you can't walk past sin. Uh, In this church, we talk all of the time about point-and-click sin. We don't talk as much about sin that's going on between your ears. The pitiful lack of faith from week to week. The absolute breaking of word that occurs. We need to hold ourselves accountable to live like Jesus did. We, we, we need to. And one thing that Jesus never did was give up his mission because of a bad day. How about you in the last month? You give up your mission because you had a bad day? You set aside your calling because you had a bad day? Did you decide that the pastors were jerks and so you were just going to try to punish us by becoming stupid? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it'll really teach us. It'll really punish us. Do you know how it punishes us? It makes our serving you not a joy. That's how it punishes us. The reason that I think God is emphasizing a new grace in our church and power over sin and we're getting towards sanctification uh, as we leave these chapters is because He's expecting more and more of us. And we're going to put childish ways behind us. We're either going to put childish ways behind us or you're going to be left in kindergarten while the rest of us go on to slay giants. You can watch from the Transjordan tribe's wife pins. Okay? I mean, have you ever considered that? It's great the Transjordan tribes went and fought. That's awesome. Their wives didn't get to go. Their kids didn't get to go. You know where they stayed with? The animals. Do you really want to be left behind watching the dog while everybody else is fighting for the glory of God? No. Then we have to embrace sanctification. You can't have week after week of conflict. You can't have week after week of instability. It's time to grow up in Christ. We have to do that. That took us to the second chapter. You'll be glad we got to the second chapter. (laughs) The second chapter was Rahab and Tikwa with no Sabbath, with no scriptures. Rahab appeared to believe before the spies even came to her house. When you look carefully at the list in Hebrews 11, you can consider what they all had in common. 
Who did Abel have fellowship with? Who did Enoch have fellowship? With whom did Noah have spiritual communion? Who encouraged or emboldened Elijah, Daniel, Nehemiah? All of them had to walk alone based on the courage of their conviction. Abraham had to leave his family. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Ruth left her own people. Jesus said, whoever would come after me must deny himself. You want to know what kind of faith Rahab had? She departed from everybody she ever knew for a message that she never saw in print, a Sabbath that she never got to experience prior. She believed based on one thing. Judgment is coming on my people, and I don't want to be a part of that. I would rather be with the people of God, so I don't care what I have to do. That's incredible. And what is the great debate of the Christian world? Why was it okay that she lied? Rahab is called a whore three times in the Bible. I mean, just a flaming, brazen prostitute. And you go, no, no, no. It says innkeeper is a possibility, not in the Greek in the New Testament. The word is porneo. I mean, you can figure that one out. She is never called a liar. Nowhere in the Bible is she called a liar. What does that tell you? Perhaps God is far more concerned with the underlying motivation of her action than he was with the proficiency with which she carried it out. I don't know if God would have provided another way. That's not the point. We talked about that for hours last time. The point was the woman escaped her national destiny because she trusted God when not one other person did, and she had less to go on. What excuse do you have? She knew, she feared, she received. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? The saving sign was called tikwa. It was a scarlet cord. It's a strange word in Hebrew because the scarlet cord hanging out of her window is also translated hope in other places. So in Ruth 1.12, Return home, my daughter. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I thought there was still tikwa for me. But who had hope when Naomi didn't? Ruth did. So we have two women in the Bible that are Gentiles... They get grafted into the Jewish faith because they have a scarlet cord of hope when nobody else has got it. What do you think you are hanging on to right now? It's not the proficiency of your sanctification. It's hope that if you stand and fight tomorrow, you will win because he will help you win. Even if you lost yesterday. What happens to Rahab if she does not hold out hope? She dies with everybody else. What happens to Ruth if she does not hold out hope? She dies. She, I mean, her whole family was being exterminated. What happens to you if you don't hold out hope? You die. So Christianity then is this tension between two truths, and we learn this from Joshua. You must be sanctified by the empowering work of the Spirit, and we have hope that He will give us more of what we need if we earnestly seek Him. Amen. It's kind of a aiming for perfection and knowing you can't hit it unless he guides your gun. You know, that's it's just how it works. That brought us to the third chapter, Bethbara. In the third chapter, we found out that the very same place that Israel crossed the Jordan, John the Baptist came baptizing in the Jordan. That's an incredible thing when you consider it. It cannot be coincidence. 
We took seven things that you could draw from that. It seems that John baptized Jesus in the spot where Joshua led Israel crossing the Jordan 1,400 years earlier. Do you think that God intended for you to make that association? Immediately after the baptism of Jesus, he went into the same desert at the crossing spot that Joshua had just come out of. Who had the harder job? The length of stay in the desert for Joshua was 40 years, and for Jesus, 40 days, where they were led by God's presence during that time. Joshua by a cloud pillar, and Jesus by the Spirit. Fourth, Jesus' first temptation in the desert was answered with Deuteronomy 8.3, which Joshua experienced in the same desert, learning that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You can't make this stuff up. He's the type of Jesus, and he physically carries out the same thing that Jesus does 1,400 years before. Fifth, both Joshua and Jesus were in the same desert when they walked out the parameters of Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 16. And as a result, they were exalted by their father rather than the devil. They both did what the father said to do. Sixth, both left the desert and chose how many men? You think there's a pattern there? Why do you think Jesus didn't hold the marketing campaign and pick 5,000? I mean, why didn't Joshua pick 5,000? Do you believe that it's possible that this carnal approach to numbers or everything completely ignores the plain truth of the scripture? That 12 men who are properly motivated and sanctified by God's spirit are more powerful powerful than 5,000 men who are simply powerful Mm. weaklings, political allies? interesting isn't it I tell you what percentage wise and pretty close to gross dollar wise I would place our actual missions budget against well let's just leave it there seven both left the desert to see a whole nation cross into God's promises initiated by a Passover Joshua 4 1 and Joshua 5 10 then Luke 22 15 that took us to chapter 4 man chapter 4 In chapter 4, we focused on the whole nation having crossed over uh, and the fact that there were two altars that taught their crossing over. This is one of the reasons that we are reviewing. There are two altars. One was in the middle of the river. That's where they should have died but were saved. And the other is on the other side of the river, indicating the faithfulness with which they would have to continue. One represents salvation And the other represents sanctification. We looked at four different times in the scripture that we see two kinds of altars. In the tabernacle, there's a bronze altar for sin that saved you. But what was the golden altar for? Incense, ongoing relationship with the Lord. If you stopped at the first altar and never made it to the second altar, what would be the point? Do you hear me? If all you care about is your sin forgiven, what are you going to do? Sin again. If you want your sin forgiven so that you can move forward in relationship with the Lord and be empowered by Him, then you'll live an ever-victorious life. 
You tell me, which kind do you hear being preached? That took us to Joshua 5, Gilgal and the Passover. When we went through Joshua 5, we noticed some incredible things. God keeps choosing the weakest. We noticed that when you compare the first time Israel counted their numbers when they came to the Jordan, and the second time they counted their numbers when they came to the Jordan, after the 38 years, they had 1,820 fewer people. And yet they went in and beat the very same giants that had now had 40 more years to prepare. Does God need your strength, your capability? No, he needs your obedience. He, he needs you to obey him the first time. We went through quite a few scenarios, guys like Israel versus Pharaoh, Gideon versus the Midianite, Ahab versus Ben-Hadad, uh, Jehoshaphat versus Ammon and Moab, Hezekiah versus uh, Sennacherib, to show you that God always chose people who were outmatched because it glorifies his name. So should your temptation feel stronger than you? Think through that. When you stare at it, Pharaoh is bigger than Israel. Midianites are bigger than Gideon. Who do you have to trust to beat your temptation? Isn't that incredible? See, we act like in Christ it's now not a temptation. You're a liar and it'll be proven. I mean, for the one you're lying to is you. Your sinful flesh craves everything that it has ever craved. Put somebody on a desert island with no access to a candy bar, it doesn't mean he won't want one. You need God's grace to deliver you in the hour of temptation. And if you rely on your own strength, you know what you'll end up doing? Loving your sin and hating everyone else's. We noticed that when they crossed the river, they set up these stones. They did it in the middle. They did it uh, on the edge. And John the Baptist came baptizing in an area, and Jesus goes out to see him, and the Pharisees and Sadducees come to see Jesus in that same area. And you know what Jesus said? God can raise up from these stones. He had already raised up a faithful generation where an unfaithful had already failed. And he could do it again. God's plan doesn't depend upon you. If you don't do it, he will raise up someone else to do it. Question becomes, do you want him to have to raise up your replacement? At the end of Joshua 5, we got to a very important three days and three nights scenario. We examined the dates and the number of days given between them, and we realized that Joshua crossed the Jordan on the 10th circumcised the people on the 14th. On the 15th, they had a special Sabbath. On the 16th, they ate the produce of the land. And on the 17th, the manna stopped. I have all of the scriptures here in more than two hours that we taught on that. Why is that important? It's the exact pattern that Jesus followed on the week that he uh, was crucified. He was crucified on the same day they crossed the Jordan. He was buried and later resurrected on the same day that the manna stopped and they ate the produce of the land. It's incredible. By the way, we also took the time to go back and show the way in which the ark of God in Noah's day did exactly the same thing. That led us into Joshua 6, where we began looking at God's heptatic plan, the way that a a thousand years is as a day. We started to notice that same pattern 
Gilgal, the place where reproach was rolled away, and that they had a Passover, corresponded to the same day that Jesus was crucified on. We notice that the first day of the week where he was declared resurrected was probably the day that Jericho was attacked. What does that tell you? That message was intended to get you to realize something. Salvation is one thing, but now that you are saved, day one, what are you supposed to do? Go to war with the world. I mean, and if you're a friend with the world, what are you to God? See, the day that they saw that Jesus was resurrected, historically, was the same day that they were asked to attack Jericho. Now, do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think it could be. I don't have time to prove that again tonight. You can go back and listen to that recording. We look at heptatic structures. I don't want to do that again. It's very long. God's pretty fascinated with sevens. Went through a lot of scriptures that day. The point was is that we're in the Hebrew year 5777, and there's a battle yet to remain. If you have any question of whether or not God is able to punish some and save others, remember that the very wall that collapsed is where Rahab lived. She is a prostitute. She lives in sight of the initial destruction and the Lord knew how to save the worst people from the worst places when they repent and still bring judgment on the masses. He is able to save us no matter what our situation is. But you know what he does not force you to do? Continue in him. You have to want to do that. How badly do you want to continue in him? Do people have to beg you just to participate in church? Does any little reason become an excuse for you to not do what you've already said God called you to do? (laughs) It's incredible. When I give you a good word, you know, when everything is collegial between us, you seem so happy to see me. You run from me and avoid me. You don't want to talk to me. You stop doing all the nice things that you were doing when I was prophesying good things to you. And you try to punish me with separation between us. Who do you think that will really punish? If you're here to be discipled, don't react like a spoiled brat. We might begin to treat you that way. The way that you should react is, thank you, teach me more. That really is it. And you know what will happen? Before long... You'll stop crawling, you'll start walking, then you'll start running, and there will be a day that we will say, you are really the answer to our prayer. In our older age, we might need you to pastor us. I mean, that's the way this is supposed to work. Pastor Mike was a disciple here. I mean, I remember when he couldn't find every book of the Bible. Today, I call him and ask him for advice all of the time. Took a walk right before this meeting to ask how hard he thought I should hit you. (laughs) Joshua 7 victory in the face of defeat we began to look at the kind of mistakes that are made when we forget to inquire of the Lord y'all remember that teaching a mistake is an opportunity to begin again more intelligently we went through Each of the battles, we looked at how many men I used, how many men Israel used, each of those things, and we found out that by the time we get to Joshua 8, 
the mistake is recoverable. No matter what happens in Joshua 8, we find out that a core should not be your anchor. That a failure on one day should not be doubled down upon so that it becomes a failure on two days. The faster you can acknowledge your mistake and run from it, the faster you can move to success. But when your stubborn pride causes you to continue to blame everyone else in the face of mounting evidence that you're actually just carnal, you get more and more carnal. I mean, you get better at hiding it, you all of those things, but you get more and more carnal. The more a man repents, the closer he is to God. That feels very counterintuitive. But the reason the more a man repents, the closer he is to God is because he's beginning to know himself. When he's not repenting, it's not because he's more holy. It's because he doesn't know himself. The failures in our life actually set us up for success because they show us how weak we are. The successes in our lives are actually a bit of a problem. They kind of blind us to our weakness. So in Joshua 7 and Joshua 8, we covered that kind of stuff a lot. After a failure in Joshua 8.1, the Lord told him not to be afraid, not to be discouraged. Take your whole army. Say whole army. Whole army. And go up and attack. For I have delivered into your hands the king of I. Sometimes we just need to reconstitute and give it our whole effort. Most of the time when you fail... After you fail, you can look and see why you failed. In my case, almost every time, it's, you know, I got this. I mean, I know I should pray, but I, I, I got this. I, I think God does not like that. He, he's proven to me that I, I am guilty of everything that I have ever rebuked you for, period. It's how I know how to rebuke you. We're made of exactly the same thing. None of you are any more stubborn, any tougher, any more blockheaded than I am. Having said that, you might be equally as stubborn and blockheaded. How dangerous is it if we lose sensitivity to what God is saying? And make no mistake, the primary way that God speaks in a church is through the fivefold ministry. I mean, it is. Every man has the right to hear from God. But you really better think twice before you stand against everybody that you know and declare them wrong. Because you better be right. Make sure we all made eye contact on that one. Okay. You're talking about me? Absolutely. Each one of you. Everyone who thought that. Without any question, I'm talking about you. Three things that we looked at that are worth repeating again. You only want to fight these three things on high ground. And you only want to fight them on high ground because better men than you, say better men, better men. have already lost. Better men than you have already lost. So, so if better men, stronger men, more anointed men have already lost here, let's not think too highly of ourselves. Let's get on high ground. The first one is flee from sexual immorality. We do not leave the high ground to go minister to people who are sexually immoral. You don't do that. They can come to the high ground and get set free. You cannot go to them. All ministries to strip clubs and stuff, it's stupid. And if you like it, I'm sorry that you like it. You are stupid. We do not do these kind of things. He said, but somebody has to show them the truth. Somebody has to love them. Why do you always think you're that somebody? 
Usually the person telling me that is the one out of a hundred in church that I'm like, no way on earth. You're the last person I would have picked, and that's why you feel called to it. Satan has set you a trap, and you're going to leave the high ground to do it. The one who's never discipled anybody wants to disciple the most difficult. The weakest are always drawn together. We have to be very careful here. Sexual immorality has been the death of most ministries. Most. Anytime you get anywhere near something that is sexually immoral, run. Run the other way. The scripture says flee from sexual immorality. But somebody has to minister to them. Yeah, but it's not you. It will be someone in a group when they have come and asked and that everyone is standing on high ground, not in the bordello. Okay? Uh, 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We have to be very careful how we deal with money. This one also in verse 11, he's told to flee from and pursue righteousness. These things are things that most ministries, most Christians have not gotten right And the scripture says, run from them. You only fight with them on high ground. The uh, next one was 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 15, and it was idolatry. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Joshua 9. Mistakes that work for you. Everybody loves the Gibeonites. Because we are Gibeonites. Mm-hmm. And um, I never want to lose that perspective, but we also looked at the fact that Joshua was sinning when he failed to inquire of God again. And even though that was true, he still took an oath in the Lord's name, and God would not let him break his oath. Ultimately, the third commandment has nothing to do with saying, God damn it. It has everything to do with living in a way that does not represent God's name right. In fact, one is just stupid, silly words that are the expression of a corrupted heart, but the other is a form of blasphemy. I represent God, and then what you do does not represent God. That causes God's name to be lowered. That's, that is terribly important, because at great cost, to the Israelites, they're going to have to honor God's name by going to help the Gibeonites in chapter 10. And if they had suspicions about them already, if they already did not know that they wanted to help them, how hard was it to help them after you found out that they lied to you? (laughs) Taking oaths and keeping our word, huge, huge in the kingdom. Especially if the oath is in God's name. You know, Jesus actually told us not to do it. He told us not to do it precisely because so many of us would get trapped by making a rash vow and not knowing how to get out of it. In fact, our desire to say, really, really, I promise it's true, I swear, is actually because we're liars and we need to keep adding verification on top of verification because everyone knows the last thing we said we didn't do. Yeah. You have an obligation to do exactly one thing, what the Lord has told you to do. Obligations that you put on yourself beyond that, they will hunt you down and make your life difficulty, whether it takes weeks, months, or years. Be very careful to make your decisions 
based on what the Lord has told you. And how would you know if he told you? Two or more witnesses. Word, spirit, two or more witnesses. Those of you that believe you can hear from God so independently that you don't have it nailed down in the Word, you don't have a clear testimony of exactly how He told you, and you don't have outside witnesses, you're just kind of silly. And uh, it will cause your life to be volatile and immature. Good word. Amen. That's a good word in this room, out of this room. That's a good word in ministry. You know how many businesses will not do business with the church? I went to rent equipment when we came here, and they said, we won't do business with the church. Why? You guys don't keep your word. Okay. I need this. Can I just pay you up front? (laughs) You know? I mean, a company policy, we do not do business with churches. Christians, we, we can't be flaky. All of that took us straight into chapter 10. The first thing we looked at in chapter 10 was this cycle. Every time Joshua has success, it's followed by failure. But when he has a failure of self-reliance, God gives him mercy and leads him into success. This caused Joshua to be merciful to others. He really uh, is a hero in the Bible in my regard because of that. He had made a vow in the Lord's name, so he kept it. He had been shown mercy, so he showed mercy. The people that he's showing mercy to... Not very meritorious. That had sex with close relatives, their mom, their dad, their sister, their aunt, their uncle, their brother's wife, mom and daughter in the same instance, brought grandma in. I mean, look at the list. God said that. I didn't. And these are the people who are finding mercy. So I don't like to play games with Christians where you try to convince me God can't forgive you because you just did so much. I'm I'm like... Why are you so invested in this? Do you just not want to be forgiven? Okay. Because Leviticus 18 lists the most horrific things that I can think, including giving your sons in the fire. And Joshua forgave them, and he's just a shadow of Jesus. But the condition of their forgiveness was that they never went back to those things. They worked in the temple of the Lord forever. At the heart of people that act like they can't be forgiven, as a pastor, what I've learned... It's because they know they're not going to stop doing the things that we talked about. So I uh, forgive me, I won't sit around and convince you anymore that God's forgiven you. In fact, I'll look at you and just go, yeah, maybe he hadn't. You know? (laughs) See what happens. That led us into stone from heaven. I think everybody remembers that, so we probably won't have to review it very much. The penalty for blasphemy in Israel, was stoning. And we see God raining down rocks from the sky upon Israel's enemies. We even looked in Revelation and saw that he does it to the whole world. So Joshua becomes the shadow locally, and Revelation becomes the fulfillment globally. That sets us up beautifully for the next week, which was last week, Joshua 10, Haram and Shalom. What was Haram? Destruction or devotion. It was putting everything in its right category. It is what grace leads you to do. The power to Haram. It causes you to hate wickedness, love righteousness. And it is the process that we're going through in Joshua 10. uh, And it is the process that will take place ultimately in the book of Revelation. 
We also took each of the things that um, are in both books, and we looked at those. But how? What? What is the paleo for shalom? Destroy the authority attached to chaos. Well, we found out that haram was related to it. It's how you do that. It's dividing the first part or primary part of chaos. It's learning to see that which has thrown your life into a living hell that you fight to defend and and that which is causing peace and, and unity in your life and get them in their proper categories. Most of the book of Joshua, from this point forward, it's the process of Haram to bring Shalom. They destroy the enemies of God while those who love the Lord thrive. <clears throat> I don't think I want to go through these again, but there were ten kings that Joshua had to face. Then they were reduced to seven. We found that same pattern in Daniel and in Revelation 17. In both books there were two spies. In both books there were military campaigns based on trumpets of seven. In both books, they defeat an Antichrist king. In both books, there are signs in the heavens. Both books have a seven-year conquest. Both books, the kings of the earth hide in caves from the coming wrath. And in both books, the leader is a king above other kings, king of kings. Yeah, that was beautiful. Uh, The way that we finished last week was with this statement. The book of Joshua is a prophetic introduction to the book of Revelation. It clearly foreshadows another Yeshua as commander-in-chief, dispossessing the planet Earth of its idolaters, first sending in two witnesses, then with a series of judgments of seven, finally defeating the kings with signs in the sun and the moon while the kings of the Earth hide in caves. The lasting picture is that the people of God that were slaves now are standing on the necks of their former kings, signifying the priestly kingship in the new order with Yehoshua as king of kings. That takes us to sanctification and the millennial reign. This is going to be fun. Are you asleep because of a review? That was 10 chapters. That was a review of 26 hours. And we did it in about an hour. Sanctification and the millennial reign. Let's take these on the screen so you can see them and we can begin to walk through them. Can y'all read those? Somebody read Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. How do you get saved? Grace. By grace through faith. By grace through trust, through faith. Right now, I'm going to talk to you about the Christian. Then we're going to talk to you about the nation. Then I'm going to talk to you about the planet Earth. We're going to look at these same three processes in the book of Joshua and in the 10th chapter. Second uh, Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The end of it is gone, the new is correct. It has come. Both of these scriptures signify a total change. A man who was damned now free from the penalty of sin and regenerated. Watch how the process changed here. Uh, Romans 6, 11. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, 
Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Well, if you've been saved, why do we have to worry about sin reigning in your mortal body? If you are a new creation, why do we have to worry about worry about it? Because some of those enemies that Joshua saved them from made it to the fortified cities in Joshua 10, 20. And you still have to go pursue them. Uh, somebody read Joshua 10, 25. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. This is what the Lord did to all the enemies, or this is what the Lord will do? He has won an outstanding heavenly victory. He has defeated all of the armies in one day, but there were remnants of those armies in other cities and a future fight coming every day thereafter. Why do we not tell people at the moment of salvation that their foot is on the neck of the enemy, but they're going to have to face the enemy every day thereafter? Instead, we made the starting line the finish line. Look how 1 Peter 1.9 says it. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's an ongoing process. At the end of the day, they defeated five kings. The next day, they go out and defeat three more. And then another one comes to help one that they're defeating, and we got a total of nine. Every day brought more battle. But they had seen every kind of king defeated by the king of kings. And they knew they could do it. This describes sanctification. Let me ask you, what's been in your life since you got born again and you have not rooted it out? Why? Can you think of a six-month period in which you did not commit that sin? Or do you just prefer not to think about it? Ask Achan how it went when he put something under the rug and just hit it. 1 John 2, 28. And now, dear children... Continue in him. Do what? Continue. See, when they crossed the Jordan, they had to keep going. When they defeated the kings at Gibeon, they had to keep going. When they put them to death at Makeda, they had to keep going. Have you stopped continuing? Now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident. What's the first thing that happens when you stop continuing in him? You lose confidence. What's the next thing? Shame. Confident and unashamed before His coming. The goal is that we keep coming, keep going until His coming. And at that moment, Romans 8.23 says your bodies will be redeemed. 1 Corinthians 15.54 says you're going to put on immortality. Has anybody done that yet? No. Me either. Let's look at these in Joshua. Somebody read... Uh, Linton, read Joshua 5, 9 through 11. Uh, Rob, take Joshua 10, 1 through 2. And Sam, take Joshua 10, 40 through 43. Joshua 5, 9 through 11. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So, the, so, this, place, so this place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal, on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. When I say, hey, give me your testimony, this is what you tell me. 
You tell me in 1982 this happened, 1974 this happened, in 1993 this happened. You are telling me about the day that God rolled away the approach of Egypt, and that's fantastic. Is that really the most relevant thing in your testimony? No. If the biggest battle that was ever won was back then, when you did not really have any idea of how wicked you are, when you had no real grasp of God's word, no insight into God's character, if those were the biggest victories, what does that say about your life since? You see how Christianity has done this? It's beautiful. In Joshua 5, the reproach of Egypt is rolled away. By the way, that was not the same day they crossed the water. It was days later. Guys, four days later. But the reproach of Egypt is rolled away. They're declared covered under the blood of the Lamb. They even do a Passover. We're in Joshua 10, and we're still fighting with an army of enemies. Why is that? Because when you get born again, that battle to get you in the kingdom, he did it all. Now that you're in the kingdom, he puts a sword in your hand and expects you to work. The biggest victories are yet to come. I thought, how how many of you were really stressed at some point as a teenager, right? Like, just overwhelmed. And now when you look back at that, how many of you, while you were an employee, thought you just couldn't handle any more pressure? Now, you're worried about whether your employees or you can make payroll. You're worried about whether or not your workers' comp insurance is going to make you worried. What happens if that contract doesn't go through? You see... We're supposed to have a growing testimony. More responsibility, more grace to cover it. When the biggest thing that you can say Jesus has done in your life is 20 years ago, you are failing. The biggest thing that is done in your life needs to be what he's doing right now. (laughs) I thought it was difficult for him to save an angry, perverse teenager. I had no idea the work that would be required, the grace that would be required in me to turn me into somebody that is even remotely competent to advise you. (laughs) Joshua 10, 1 through 2. We're moving on from Israel's national salvation now to their process of sanctification. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this. <laughs> They're very alarmed. Why? Because they didn't stop with the first victory. They had won a second victory. And now people are starting to surrender before he even gets there. You following me? There are things you could be tempted to do in your first year of salvation that now the devil doesn't even bother with. He's already surrendered it because he knows there's no chance. Of course, he's probably got his favorite fishing lure that he knows you'll bite on every time. too. The process of sanctification is going from one battle to the next with equal enthusiasm, equal dependency upon the Lord, equal expectation of victory. And instead, we're always looking in the rearview mirror, pointing to what he did on the day we were saved. 
that's like the most significant day of your life being the day that you were born. Does that make much sense? Yeah. What, what, what day of the week was Donald Trump born on? How about Barack Obama? How about George Bush? No one knows, huh? But you do know some of the things they did since they were born, right? Why is the most significant thing that ever happened to you the day that you were born again? Well, you're very, very uh, abstract in your thought, then maybe you've gone, well, none of the other things would have been possible. Great, tell me the other things. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. We're going to have to learn to rejoice in what he is now accomplishing in us instead of viewing it as a done deal somewhere in the past because that gives us an excuse to do something. Well, it may not all be right, but I'm saved. How saved are you? Joshua 10.40, who's got that? So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. What word do you hear in there that Adam was told? Subdue. Subdue. Joshua accomplished what Adam did. Adam was told to subdue the earth and it subdued him. One of the created things under him mastered him. Now Joshua is told to go subdue the land and he's subduing it. Do you know what sanctification looks like? You're subduing the things that once subdued you. Oh, come on, guys. Anybody get pissed off in traffic? <laughs> let's say let's say that uh, last month was a 10, right? Like it was just a blazing inferno. But this month it's only happened once. That is sanctification. You are not earning your way to heaven because heaven is actually present in your life. It's invading more and more areas and taking control of more and more things. See, that's sanctification. Who doesn't want more grace working in their life? What if the failures that you've had this year, whatever they are, some of them monumental in my case, what if those failures were there to show you the actual areas that you need to grow in sanctification. What if he's allowing you to get stung? And boy, do I try to sting you with my preaching and teaching. I mean, I try to tag you. Uh, I'm just short of calling a name with every thought. <laughs> Thank you. But the point of that stinging, that tagging, is so that you learn where you have to grow. I'm convinced that a father doesn't beat his children just to beat them if he's a good father. That the discipline was to teach you this is the area that must grow and change. Amen. Yeah? I know in my life I'm taking it serious as a heart attack. Amen. Because I can't be for you or my family what God's called me to be if I stiff arm the voice of the Spirit's correction in my life. Amen. Charismatics, you love for it to be the Lord said turn left, the Lord said turn right. It might be that He let you get kicked in the face publicly. He might be that everything that He was once blessing is now drying up and dying because He's trying to get your attention. 
Now, that's not him punishing us. That is him saying, hey, hello, there's a king over here you have to go behead. And you're ignoring it. You're acting like it's not there. Joshua 10 teaches us what total subduing of the enemies look like. It's a fight for salvation, then a fight because you're saved, all the way to total victory. Uh, Let me zoom in here so you'll see this. The first slide there, position, process, physically, those three areas you see in the life of a Christian, you're saved and justified. You then are going through a process of sanctification. It's not done until you're glorified. Well, look what happens with the nation. The nation is saved in Joshua 5. They're covered under the blood of the Lamb. There's uh, no more reproach of Egypt. But in Joshua 10, they're, they're going from one battle to the next and enemies taking note of them. Their life is actually getting more difficult because they're getting more holy. Is that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jericho didn't come to fight against them. They had to go attack Jericho. I, I didn't come to fight them. They had to go attack I. Gibeon surrendered. Do you see how God was building their confidence? Mm-hmm. And because they're making progress, the enemy's taking note, and he descends on them with five kings. Are you beginning to see why your life looks the way that it does? Yeah. He gives you easy victory. He does it all when you're saved. Then he leads you into easy, easy victory, easy victory. He's blessing you, building your confidence, and then your life seems to go to hell in a handbasket all in a single week. That's spiritual warfare. It's because you're aimed at the right direction. And what do we do usually when we run into five kings? We go, I must be doing something wrong. I'm going to back up. I'm going to hide. It's got to be my pastor's fault. What what can I do different? You know, all I did, pastor, was the things you told me to do, and now everything. Yes, you've become dangerous to the enemy. You're not a pansy anymore. All right, how many of you just went on a missions trip? Can I tell you I've watched more five kings descend on somebody after a missions trip than I can count? I've seen relationships that were great. After the missions trip, they never recovered. You know that spiritual warfare? I even have noticed that my Ford runs fine going to Mexico, but as soon as I'm there, everything's different, you know? If you're going on vacation, probably you catch every flight on time. When you're going around the world to feed the poor, your bags are gone and nothing works. I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek because we have to awaken to the actual principles. When you're in war, things start to get confusing. They weren't before because you weren't in war. Sanctification is an ever-increasing war. And he leads you into the battles that you can't win with his help, but you can't win without it. So when you lose one, you're supposed to go back and look at Joshua and go, I didn't inquire of the Lord enough about this. I was too self-sufficient, too self-reliant. I have to go trust the Lord now and ask for his battle plan. And you know what? You'll win the battles that you've been losing. It's not about branding somebody a black sheep, putting a scarlet thing around your neck. It's about getting you to go back and do the things you did at first. The strangest solution, and we're going to see him giving away the end from here. Do you know where this whole campaign ends? Back at Gilgal, where they started. It turns out that no matter how far they go in battle, they always come back to the same place. 
See, if you can just go back to the beginning, in the first church in the book of Revelation, what they have to do? Repent, do the things they did at first. I mean, it's just over and over and over. You stretch out in warfare. When you start getting your butt kicked, you run right back to the cross again. And then you stretch out a little further, you run right back to the cross. And at the cross, he never shows you what's wrong with everyone else. Amen. <laughs> All right. So, Steph, take 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 9. Elder Steve, take 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 27. I should take Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then it's going to get just off the chain. I didn't do lots of scripture uh, chains for you this week because it's conceptual, but wait till you see where these concepts go. There is no level that you can look at the word and not be surprised at the depth of God. It's great. Amen. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-9. through 9. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. The second advent of Christ is the salvation day of the world. Now, here's what I mean by that. The work is not done, but when the king returns, the reproach of Egypt is being rolled away. The first thing that he does is kill the author of chaos. First thing that he does. This is like when you are born again. The king's presence is in your life. The toughest victories, the biggest victories, he gives you on day one. But there's a whole process that comes after it. Elder Steve, you've got that. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 24-27. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The first day of... Oh, I'm sorry, there's one more sentence. The first day of his reign is not the last day. See, he shows up and he kills the uh, man of lawlessness. He begins to put down the rebellion. But he has to keep going until every enemy is under his feet. What happens to us when we're born again is the man of lawlessness is, is uh, unseated from the throne of our heart. It was usually us. But then we begin the process of putting every enemy underfoot. You're declared saved because you're now uh, in love with him and him with you. But you're nowhere near done. Not even close. And most of the bottles are not external. They're internal. I've been aiming at that in every sermon for as long as I can remember. Well, the reason I do what I do, we don't care. It's wrong. Stop explaining it. Stop justifying it. And repent. Well, I was just trying to help. Obviously it's not. Stop it. And we have such a hard time with that. It is so hard for us as human beings. We're always misunderstood and it's always unjust. It's never just that you're unsanctified. Except that is the reason. And there's not a man or a woman in this room that has finished that process, not even close. Why does it surprise us when somebody points to an area that needs to be submitted to Christ? Why does it offend us? It can't. Can I tell you every day, every day, from the Word and from godly loving sheep, I find things I'm not doing right. 
I mean, every day. That's, that's what the Christian life is. And you're bringing them to the Lord and saying, they're right. I want to do better than that. I'm finding out I'm not capable unless you help me. And I know you've given me everything that I need, but somehow or another, I'm not tapping into that. Help me. But that is not your prayer when your reaction is, why did Rob say that to me? <laughs> Doesn't he know I was just trying to help Justin? <laughs> and it's funny because all of you do it. <laughs> that's, that's why it's fun. Every person in this room does it. it I mean... What do you say to your... I, I shouldn't ask you this because some of you don't treat your five-year-olds right either. But what do you say to your five-year-old when you say, pick this up and put it there? And he looks at you and says, I was just playing with it. The thing is... is <laughs> it doesn't matter. You've received a word from the Father. Do it. Just do it. Do it without explanation. Do it without justification. Do it without needing to equivocate. Kim didn't do it! You know, we have to be careful or else what we're doing is living like spoiled brats while we're claiming to be Christ. What Joshua confronts us with is, is such a hard truth and it's so necessary. This battle's never done. And he put every enemy under our feet and yet there are survivors in fortified cities everywhere. And about the time you think you've killed the last Amalekite, he shows up and embarrasses you publicly. Yeah. You think it's a party that you're getting corrected in front of one or two people? Wait till every mistake that you make is put on the World Wide Web. And there is a growing number of people invested in your failure because it makes them feel better about their lives. Wait till you're the subject of conversations between people you've never even met just because they hate the strictness with which you adhere to a standard. Okay? And you're all headed there. All of us are. The closer you get to the Lord, the more you'll be assigned spoken against. Revelation, no, there was a last uh, verse. I cut Elder Steve off and it's important because it tells you when this ends. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. So when are you done? When death has gone from the creation. We're not there yet. That's We're nowhere near there yet. Uh, death's been kicking my household around quite a bit lately. Hurts quite a bit. I know exactly what to say as a preacher. You know how to respond as a Christian. We know all the right things to do. Have you mastered making your emotions obey that yet? Yeah, I haven't either. Okay, so what does that drive you to do? Cry and pray. Yeah, I mean, do you follow me? That shows the work of sanctification, and that doesn't make you a failure. He's showing you where you must win. It causes you to ask for grace so that you can win. See, it's almost like we have the opinion that if somebody identifies an error in us that that means that we're not worthwhile to Christ or anybody else. Where did you get that idea? Is that how you view others? When you identify an area that's unsubmitted to Christ, that is a beautiful thing because it allows you to know what you bring to the cross when you get to Gilgal. Okay? I'm finding them all the time. 
I'm both disappointed and encouraged. I'm disappointed I'm not further along. I'm encouraged that now I know what I need to do. Yeah. What you see here, then, is for the Christian, it's salvation, sanctification, and glorification. For the nation, it was rolling away the reproach of Egypt, fighting battle upon battle, and then reaching a place where the enemy was totally subdued. For the earth, we... At the advent of Christ, we have the reproach of Egypt going away. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have enemies being put underfoot. And now Miss Aisha is going to show us what it's like when when the world is glorified, when the world is subdued. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crime or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Let's get this straight. In the first chart, are you glorified yet? No. No. In the second chart, is the nation subdued every enemy yet? No. In the third chart, is the world glorified because the old order of things has passed away? That means that whether we're talking about a personal level or a nationalistic level or a global level, do you know what we are? Serving a God at war. Period. And so that's what life looks like. It's, it is war with sin. Uh, this is where this turns to me to be a beautiful message. You ready? Yeah. You want something beautiful? Yes. yes. Okay. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, according to Easton's Bible Dictionary, and I put the sources for everything here for you, means possession of peace or foundation of peace. You know what the first king to attack uh, Joshua's people was Adonai Zedek. And he came fighting out of the corner of Jerusalem. That's where he hailed from. Okay? I love that the uh, name Jerusalem has a dual meaning. Both the foundation of and possession of peace. Yeah. I'll let you figure that out. Hebron. Hebron means community or alliance, according to New Unger's Bible Dictionary. It means society or friendship, according to Hitchcock's Bible Dictionary. It can mean association or in league with, according to Holman Bible Dictionary. When the king of Hebron came, the place that he left to go and fight, was community, society, friendship, or association. Do you see how all those are related? Mm -hmm. You could say fellowship, maybe. Jarmuth. Jarmuth. When the king attacks from Jarmuth, Jarmuth means height or elevation. Might refer to a calling. Takes us to Lachish. According to Strong's Encyclopedia, Lachish means impregnable, invincible, 
or undefeatable. That's interesting since Lachish, when they go to fight, like, when the king of Lachish comes to fight them, they beat him right away. When they go fight Lachish later in the chapter, did you catch it was a two-day battle? Yeah. It only took one day to take Jericho. It takes two days to defeat, defeat Lachish, and he's already killed their king and some of their men. So they apparently lived up to their name, huh? Mm-hmm. Eglon. Eglon means young bull. In the Hebrew mind, it's associated strongly with confidence for all the reasons you can think of there. Putting them in order here. Possession and foundation of peace. Community, society, friendship, association. In other words, fellowship. Height or elevation, calling. Impregnable, undefeatable, took two days. Young bull, confidence. These things that Joshua defeated for us are things that are supposed to come at the moment you're born again. He defeated them in a single day. The moment you're born again, you have the foundation and you possess peace, don't you? The minute that you're born again, you enter into a new community, society, friendship, or association. The moment you're born again, your life has a calling. The moment you're born again, a baby Christian, cannot be defeated if you will not give up. Cannot be. The moment you're born again, you ought to have a confidence you've never had before because for the first time in your life, the Lord's with you. These are the kings that Joshua put down on the ground and had each Israelite come and stand on. He's showing us what the basis of salvation is. But some of the followers of these kings reached fortified cities. Do you from time to time have to fight for your peace? Well, yeah. Do you from time to time have to fight to stay in fellowship? Let me be perfectly honest. It's very easy to stay in fellowship when we all agree with each other, isn't it? It's a lot harder to be in fellowship when you disagree. I saw two men get into a car on a way to a football game, and because one was wearing an Alabama shirt and the other was wearing an LSU shirt, we stopped the car and one man got out of the car. Because of who they were rooting for at the game, they were both going to watch. Does that say something about our nature? Can you only fellowship with people that agree with you? And if that's the case, how would you ever know when you were wrong? Well, see, it's just the way that you said it. Okay. It's the way the mirror reflected it. It's just the way the mirror was so harsh to me. (laughs) The day you're born again and you have that calling, it's a whole new direction. All of these kings were defeated in a place. Do you remember where the cave was? It's on the screen. You cannot make this up, okay? Now, I've been preaching for a long time about the five kings. I didn't know this. Come on now. Yeah, I got your full attention. Yeah. Let yeah. me do a drum roll and a reveal. Yeah. Makeda, place of shepherds, Holman Bible Dictionary. <laughs> if you have not got a foundation in the possession of peace, are not in fellowship. If you don't understand the height of your calling, if you don't feel spiritually invincible, if you are not growing in your confidence, 
go to the place of the shepherds and we will teach you how. <laughs> Maybe your shepherds are the ones that got these things before you understood it. Don't hate them because of that. We live to give them to you. None of us stand in a vacuum. Others helped us get them to. And you might have to help me get it again. The battles that were completed, I'm sorry, the battles that completed the southern campaign. My sentence makes no sense there. When they fought these five kings, there were remnants that still spread out and they went to chase them. Those are, that's the second section that we read tonight that began in uh, verse 29. And as they went to chase them, they find three more kings, three more uh, cities. Now, they fight all of those five again. All of those five show up somewhere, but there's three new ones. So here's what we're relating this to. On the day you got saved, you found peace, you found fellowship, you found a calling, you found a spiritual defense, and you found new confidence. day you got born again. You might have to fight to keep them, but you're given them the day you're born again. Now, as you're going out to finish the subjugation of the land, we're going to find three new kings that you have to fight with. And remember, I didn't make this up. These are just what is in the text. I didn't add any, didn't take any away. The only one's there. You ready? First one, Libna. While they're fighting, they go to Libna. It turns out that as a Christian... After saved, now sanctified, you have to fight to be transparent. Now why? Why if you can come in the kingdom and say, hey, I'm a wicked sinner, uh, please forgive me. I'm a homosexual, I'm a drug addict, I'm a, a thief, an adulterer, whatever it is that you are. Why then, after being saved, do we have to fight for transparency? Because now you feel like you've achieved something. And you don't want to lose it. It's harder for Christians that are supposed to be mature to admit sin than it is for the new Christian to admit sin. Now why might that be? Do you think it's because we got saved so long ago? That was all in the past. Now, you know, we're something else? No. The man who's closest to God is the one that's repenting the most. The man that's the closest to God is the one repenting the most. You know who has that right? The Jewish sages. Yeah. They may not have understood Jesus, but they understand repentance. You know who has it wrong? The Christian theologians. They are so, so wrong. Repentance is not what you do to get saved. Repentance is what you do because you're saved. I mean, it, it may be a before and after. I'm not making a chicken and egg argument. What I'm trying to say is that you never stop doing it. It's ongoing. Yeah. It turns out that they come to Libna and have to fight to be transparent. Then they go to Gezer. Gezer. Gezer means two things. Cut off or an isolated area. Now tell me, after you get saved and you sin. Do you fight to be transparent? <laughs> you probably fight. Try it. 
What's the first question that you ask the Lord? Lord, will you forgive me? What's the second question? Do I have to tell anybody? <laughs> if I tell them the truth? Like, Lord, you and I both know what I did. You can see I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have to tell anybody, do I? Then, you work in concentric circles. I'll tell my wife. I know she'll forgive me. Lord, are we good now? Or do I have to tell Wade and Matthew? Lord, I told Wade and Matthew. Now, who would I... You see what I'm saying? We're fighting to not let people see too much. If your first reaction when somebody hurts your feelings, especially over righteousness, is to be less transparent, you're losing the battle of sanctification. If your second reaction is to isolate yourself, you're losing the battle of sanctification. Now remember what I've been saying. That doesn't mean you're worthless. That doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean we've given up on you or you should give up on you. You know what it means? You've now found out where you need to win. Amen. So say, Lord, give me your grace to be transparent. <coughs> By grace, I mean your divine empowerment to, to, to be honest. Because that's what transparency is. Secondly, Lord, I can see that I want to duck and cover. I want to hide. I need your divine power, your Holy Spirit working through sanctification so that I will want to be around people because I'm scared they'll hate me or I hate them. I was praying with somebody the other day said, I just don't love people as much as you do. I said, you don't know me as well as you think. <laughs> he said, but it's, I've watched you. You do love people. Well, the Lord gave me that love for people. I want to turn and say, how do you know I love you? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you ever uh, you ever been one of those people that like somebody else's kid has crapped and it's up its back he's thrown up or he's got snot or something it's terrible and you're just like disgusted but everything your kid does is wonderful God had to give you love for that child he, he, he had to. Because if he didn't, nobody would take care of them. They're nasty creatures. <laughs> Third one. <laughs> now remember, I didn't make this up. I actually, I want to read you just a bit of this so that you will get that this is not random. Southern cities. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Makedah to Libna. And attacked it. First city that came up, right? They, the Lord uh, also gave that city and its king into Israel's hands. The city and everyone in it, Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors. Verse 31. Then Joshua and all Israel moved on from Libna to Lachish. Now, I didn't include Lachish here. Why? Because it's one of the five previously. He took up the positions against it and attacked it. The Lord handed Lachish over to Israel. And Joshua took it on the second day. The city and everyone in it he put to the sword just as he had done to Libna. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Gezer, had come up uh, to help Lachish. Gezer wasn't in the previous list, so it's here. It's second. Y'all see how I've done this? Yes. Yes. But Joshua defeated his army until there were no survivors. Um, you keep scanning down, and um, in 36 he mentions Eglon from the previous list. And... Verse 39. 
They took that city and its villages and put them to the sword. Everyone in it, they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did to Debir and its king as they had done to Libna. Every time I came to a new king kingdom, I listed it. Debir is also called Kiriath Sephor. Kiriath Sephor means house of the book. But since that is an associated definition, I thought I'd give you some more. New Unger says house of the book. Strong's Encyclopedia says sanctuary, as in tabernacle and temple. Just in case, I'll give you another one. The Holman Bible Publisher says a common noun, the Hebrew term, refers to the back room of the temple, the Holy of Holies. Looking at these three again. After salvation, in the process of sanctification, when you sin, when you have a problem, the first issue that you have to deal with is, am I going to be transparent? If you can't be transparent, then sanctification is not working appropriately. The second one is, am I going to pull away? Am I going to isolate? Do I just need some time to process? In other words, a time to continue to sin. So you call it whatever you want. And I'll probably tell you next time you insult me, I need a minute. It's sin. We don't need a minute. The moment that it hit, you knew it was wrong. You're just trying to negotiate out some kind of rationalization to make it okay. Okay? The next one. When you have sinned and you're fighting the, the desire to pull away from transparency, to pull uh, away from fellowship so that you're in isolation comes the battle for the house of the book, the sanctuary, or specifically the holy of holies. What happens is as you build a wall between you and your neighbor, you're building a wall between you and God. And you think, I'll just go to him. I just need to go to him and then, then we'll work out our deal. His word says the opposite. Yeah. Go work out your deal with them, then come to him. Yeah. You see... And when you get that wrong, well, I just needed some time to pray about it. Uh, and it was first a day, then a week, then two weeks. And now I know it's been a two, mo- two months. We'll get together. We'll talk soon. You've had a ceiling between you and God the whole time. You can't hear from God like that. The moment that you realize you don't want to be transparent, the moment that you realize that you want to isolate, you have cut yourself off from the Holy of Holies if you give in to those. Now, I didn't make up these titles. I didn't manipulate their definitions. The five kings are listed in Joshua 10, and these are the next three that we come to. (coughs) Do you think maybe the Holy Spirit is layering this word because he knew what you would need on this day? Oh, man, if he can put a rock in outer space and have it circle in planetary orbits and enter the atmosphere at the time that an enemy needs to be struck down for idolatry while standing in a crowded room, I bet he can arrange this in a way that would hit you where it needed to hit you on the day it needed to hit you. Your spiritual peace, fellowship, calling, armor, and confidence were fought for by King Joshua or King Jesus. They were one at the place called Makeda, the place of the shepherds. The fight was not over. 
you would go on to fight with the surviving remnant of the major towns you faced. And they would be a fight for transparency, a fight to avoid isolation, a fight to enter into the Holy of Holies in the house of the book. Come on, have you ever seen this before? Before today, I had neither. I've preached about the five many times. I've never seen this before. And what's worse is I have all kind of stuff to do today. It took ten times as long to put together the review as this. And I'm like, Lord, it's not much good to do the review if we don't have a... He's got more there than you can imagine. You just have to look. Just in case your mind's not blown yet. In this chapter, there are six kings named. So we start off with the five kings of those kingdoms. But then the king of Gezer comes to, to help the king of Lachish. Did y'all see that in the yes. chapter? Yeah. So we have six kings named. In the order that the kings are named, it tells another story. You ready? Yes. The first king, Adonai Zedek. We've been through him. Lord of righteousness. Second king, Ho-Ham. Go get you some Ho-Ham. <laughs> Jehovah impels. I listen, I put the source material here so you could study it on your own time. Easton's Bible Dictionary, oh Get to Pyram, it gets better. Pyram? Wild donkey. I think that's what that says. <laughs> Jaffia. Splendid. Now, Debir was a city earlier, but there's a king named Debir in this chapter. Sanctuary. Not Hoham, Horam. High and exalted. Do you see him? Okay, didn't make any of them up, put all the source material for them. The Lord of Righteousness, Jehovah, forces the wild ass to be splendid in the sanctuary. He is high and exalted. Which begs the question, who's the wild ass? What does the wild donkey represent in the Bible? You. See, in a chapter we're talking about sanctification. The order the kings are mentioned is the Lord of Righteousness impels or forces the wild donkey to be or become splendid or bright in his sanctuary, the house of the book, where he's highly exalted. You know what that means? The, The word forces is not there. It's actually impels, and it's not a word we use, but you recognize the word compel. It means that the Lord of Righteousness persuades you who are a wild donkey to become (laughs) splendid and bright in his sanctuary, the house of a book, because he's highly exalted. The process of sanctification says, yeah, I'm a wild ass, but he's able to make me more if I will keep going to that holy of holies. He's able to change my nature. He's able to help me. He's able to totally change my life. Now, 
I didn't make up those orders. I didn't put those kings. I didn't make the definitions. Did you hear that the last battle of the three cities was for the Holy of Holies? And here, when you list the six kings, it's really the last fight. It's the Lord of Righteousness will either compel you or not, who are already a wild donkey to become splendor, splendorous and bright, but it will come from being in the Holy of Holies or not. So what happens if you don't want to be transparent and you want to isolate? You stay a wild ass. Now, let's just set on that for a minute. When you pull away, when you isolate, when your fellowship is stolen, when your peace is gone, when you do those things, do you become more godly or less? Yes. All the time that we think we need to pull away to be alone, it is actually destroying the work that he's been doing. That's why the Bible clearly, point blank, flat out says, do not forsake the fellowship of believers. Because when we do, we regress. We don't progress. And yet, when you touch something that's hot, what do you do with your hand? Our reaction to pain is to recoil. But the cross is the embracing of that pain. Jesus knew what it was up front, and he went to it. And you have to deny that natural impulse to pull away and go to it if you're going to be perfected by it. And if you won't do it, then the cross is not yours. You're unworthy of the kingdom of God. If you look and you go, I didn't do it in this area, I did in this, but not this one, and now I'm embarrassed, then all you have to do is go, now I know what I have to do. Okay? I can't imagine that at this point in our church's history, we could find in a more ancient text more synchronicity with what we needed in the order that we needed it than this. I had no idea about this when I was preaching about the holy mixture. But the messages go together so well. He will anoint you to win with these kings. He will help you. You are not an orphan. The key to the process of personal salvation, sanctification, and glorification is. The key to the process of national salvation, sanctification, and glorification is. The key to the process of global salvation, sanctification, and glorification is. The last verse of the chapter. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. When you don't know what else to do, you run right back to the cross. And when that happens, you know, your opinions die. Your emotions die. Your right to be right dies. Everything dies on the cross with Christ. And you receive marching orders from him that if you obey, you obey to salvation. If you do not obey, you cannot be saved. You reach the cross and turned away. See, that is a much more accurate description of Christianity than I went to the cross when I was eight and I've never been back and praise God I'm saved, covered under the grace. Forgive me, that's a load of, uh, what was that king? Hoham. <laughs> It's, it's, it is. And it produces lives that are diseased. Now, our church is growing in righteousness. Amen. We're not growing in a false outward righteousness. We're not growing in some kind of system of rules. 
we're growing in a desire to know and do the will of God. Amen. The vast majority of our population is further along today than they were. We're going on mission trips, and even our elders are just <laughs> astounded at the beautiful things they're seeing. You know, we are able to go to new places that were not started at the beginning of the ministry, that weren't blazed by uh, particular families, and the exact same things are happening. Amen. 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 Everything is headed in the right direction, and we've never experienced more warfare, and we've never had bigger disappointments with backsliding and regression that's going on at the same time. Now, why do those things exist together? Because we're in a warfare. We don't want to lose anyone, not, not one person. So what we do when we look at this honestly is we go, did I find an area that I have to repent in now as a process of sanctification. And when you do, when you see that, that's not a sad thing. That is a beautiful thing. You found out where the problem was, and it's corrected. There is no Christian, no real Christian, that will not receive another one who has come to that decision. But none of us can accept it when you won't. We're not going to lower the standard, not for any of us. Does that make sense? No. Now imagine that every person in this room tonight found something in their life. I bet you don't have to look hard. I mean, you, if you do have to look hard, it's because you're not that close to the Lord. So let's just be honest about that. Something in your life that is affecting peace for your fellowship with others or your calling, or your ability to fend off the attack of the enemy, or your confidence, something that is keeping you from the shepherds, something that doesn't make you want to be transparent, makes you want to isolate, and is hindering your ability to get in the presence of God. I bet every person in this room has something that the Lord has already dinged your heart about. You were probably kissed at first because you thought I was talking about you, and I am. And now you're realizing... Well, it's not just about me. It's probably about every person in this room as well. What if every one of us took a step tonight to put that enemy back under the foot of Joshua, back under our foot, and we put it to death, so that when we walked out of here, where we were at, was every person had subdued a little more of the kingdom. In fact, every part of the kingdom they were aware of. That means we would be living on heaven, on earth, to the fullest extent that had been revealed to us right now and in this moment. Do you know what that's like? It's like the height of worship. It's like the manifest presence of God. Do you know how rare it is that you can get together five people who will actually do it? That's what I wanted to lay before you tonight. I started in Joshua 1, finished in Joshua 10, Because I think if you only had the ten chapters of Joshua, you could understand the plan of God for humanity. I really do. Next week is a missions week here. The other guys on the turkey team are going to be sharing. We're going to have worship and uh, prophecy because we need your help. We're going to close tonight in prayer. And uh, I hope you don't just walk away and forget this. I mean... I hope you'll take it seriously. Don't let the devil talk you into some petty offense. There are eternal things at stake. I'm offensive. I'm never going to stop being offensive. I work at offending. I really, really do. 
because I think sometimes that's how the biggest growth occurs. Right? If we only speak nice words to each other, you never uncover the splinters that are there that you've been hiding for years. You just learn to live with them. Tonight, let's see if we can experience the kingdom of God. Go stand to your feet. Thank <laughs> you.